you need a ride to the planning meeting, you can just call the office. I'm sure they can tell you they can get somebody in your area to get you there if you need a ride. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 36. We're actually moving on from verses 23 to 27, believe it or not. And now we are in the section on the Mount of Transfiguration. Six years ago, when we first uh, moved to Burbank, we got a house that was in pretty bad shape, kind of a fixer-upper. But, you know, I have a background in construction, and so we started into our long, enduring remodeling process. And there were several instances where, you know, I knew what I was doing, and I had done things before, and I knew what was code, and I did it. And then the inspector came and said, well, that may be Idaho code, (laughs) but that is not Burbank code. And so I had to receive a little bit of rebuke and correction from the inspector, humble myself, and uh, then tear it out and redo it. And we often do things like this as Christians. Sometimes we're very well-intentioned. We think we know what we're doing. Uh, we make great effort, maybe even at great expense, only to discover we have done the wrong thing. And this morning we come to a text where we are going to learn some lessons like this from the life of Peter. Luke has been laboring to reveal to us the identity of Jesus. Luke has revealed to us that Jesus is the Christ of the the son of the living God. He has done this through Jesus's teachings through Jesus' miracles, through Peter's statement, Jesus' affirmation. And so it's perfectly clear that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is also going to go to Jerusalem, be delivered up into the hands of the leaders, where he will be crucified and three days later be raised from the dead. Then Jesus makes some very hard calls to discipleship. They're really not hard calls, they're just biblical calls but in our day and age when being a christian is just calling yourself one they seem almost too hard to accept calls to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow jesus and then jesus after making these hard calls tells the crowd a very curious little prophecy he says Oh, and by the way, some of you here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. And then we come to our text for this morning. So if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and following. And follow along as I read. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying... The appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And these We're leaving, and as these were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. But, not really what he was saying, but while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid and entered in the cloud, and then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of these things which they had seen. I just want you to know that this text is just jam-packed with preaching topics. Oh, man, it's loaded. Uh, There are, we could talk about 
great doctrines of and truths, prayer, glorification, the kingdom of God, the glory of God, the Messiah, heaven, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, Moses, Elijah, just incredible, incredible variety of things. And I want you to know, I struggled trying to decide what little minutia I was going to give you this morning. And since we have already covered some of these topics already in our study of Luke, and since we are covering some of them in our study of Daniel on Sunday nights, what I want to do this morning is focus your attention on Peter and his example, or probably better, his lack of example. The big I text, the big idea of the text is that Jesus is fulfilling this curious little prophecy he made in verse 27. That some in the crowd and among his disciples would not see death until they got a glimpse of God's kingdom. And this was to cement in the minds of Peter, James, and John the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was going to set up his kingdom on earth, that it would be a glorious kingdom, a kingdom where all the saints of all the ages would dwell in glory and that they could have that hope. So that's kind of the big overarching idea. Now just look at verse 28. The text reads, some eight days after these things, Matthew and Mark tell us that it was exactly six days. Uh, Luke just says some eight days because he's approximating. And the text says he took along Peter and John and James. And in our previous studies, we have learned that among the 12 disciples, there was actually uh, three groups. Sometimes Andrew was included in this innermost group. And Jesus selected this special group, Peter, James, John, to experience things that the others were never able to experience. They were the leaders of the 12, leaders among equals, but they were leaders nonetheless. And so Jesus is taking these three, the text says, if you look at the end of verse 20, 28, up the mountain to pray. And we've already explored Jesus's prayer life in some detail. He was devoted to prayer. Sometimes he prayed all night. Look at verse 29. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Mark says Jesus's garments, I like this, became exceedingly white as no launder on earth can whiten them, even with tide. Matthew says Jesus's face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. So we're talking about some pretty incredible stuff here where Jesus has now transformed. And it's like he's created a porthole into this other realm, this supernatural kingdom realm that the disciples can look into. And we know from texts like Daniel 12.3 that this is where all believers are headed. Daniel 12.3, speaking of believers in the kingdom, uses these words. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus even quotes this text in Matthew 13.43 in relationship to the kingdom. The Bible speaks of angels radiating light too. For instance, in Matthew 28, 3, the angel that appeared to the Roman guards is described by Matthew with these words, and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And you remember what happened after they saw him. They all fainted. It was so scary. They hit the dust and woke up after seeing the angel. In Luke 24, 4, the angel who appeared to the women who came to the tomb is described as wearing dazzling clothing. So what we're seeing here is a glimpse into glory, into kingdom glory, into heaven from earth. Now look at verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah. Let's just stop there. And this is an amazing scene to ponder. I was tempted to go here last week, but we're getting here this week. Remember last week we talked about heaven and how we'll be able to talk with Jesus? That being in heaven is not Jesus, this huge figure sitting up on this throne and us all groveling in the dust for eons of years. We'll be able to talk with him. 
And we see this right here as two sinners, Moses and Elijah, who are saved by grace, are chatting with the Lord of glory in his kingdom. Something you and I will also be able to do if we know the Lord. Look at verse 31. Who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That is, Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about his departure. What departure? His departure from this earth. His death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. They're saying, Lord, so when are you going to die? I mean, you came to earth to die. When's it going to happen? When are you going to make atonement for sins? And so they're dialoguing about his future death. The very thing that Jesus had already tried to tell his disciples was going to happen. And as we shall see later on in Luke 9, he'll tell them again. Now we come to Peter and his bad example. And three things you can learn from Peter's example, which will help you live your Christian life in a way that will better glorify God. And the first thing we want to learn is remain awake. <laughs> Look at verse 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. Jesus had taken his three most trusted disciples up to the mountain, not for naps, but for prayer. And we have learned that Jesus had great stamina in prayer. At times, he prayed all night. And I don't know if you've ever even tried to pray all night or even half the night. It just takes Herculean strength and incredible concentration to do this. Even three or four hours of prayer is a labor. And of course, they have been most likely ministering all day, working, and then they hiked up the mountain. Jesus says, all right, let's break up and pray. And you know what happens. I mean, you've experienced this. As soon as you start getting into prayer, you confess all your sins, you start going through your prayer life, and all of a sudden, your body says, can't you just sleep for a little while? It reminds me of the Jungle Book character, Ka, the snake. Go to sleep. (laughs) Satan, demons, your flesh, Ka. They all try to get you to sleep instead of talk with God. The disciples went up to the mountain to pray and they fell asleep. And while they were sleeping... Jesus was transfigured before them. They were missing it. Look at the middle of verse 32. But when they were fully awake, what does that tell us? They were zonked. They were out. They they were just totally out of it. They conked out big time. And you know what? Sometimes it just happens. You know, you say, well, I'm just going to stay up tonight and get some prayer in and you start praying and pretty soon your head's nodded forward and you're drooling on your Bible <laughs> or it falls back and you hear this snarfing noise. <laughs> you wake yourself up and think, what's that noise? It's time for bed and you decide, well, I'm just going to just pray tonight with my head on my pillow, but I'm not going to fall asleep. (laughs) Talk about to the Lord about all those important things I know I should be praying about. And you get into that first prayer and the next thing you know, the alarm's going off and it's the next morning. The disciples were no different. Jesus is absorbed in prayer. He's concentrating and Peter then James, then John, crash. So Jesus is up there praying and they're sleeping. And while this is happening, Jesus is being transfigured before them. And look at the end of verse 32. They finally wake up and verse 32 says they saw his glory, that is Jesus' glory, and the two men standing with him. Jesus now is appearing in radiant kingdom glory. And they had been sleeping. 
in the garden, the night Jesus was betrayed, you remember what happened. He tells his, his, his disciples, listen, my soul is troubled within me to the point of death. Pray that you might not enter into temptation. And Matthew tells us that Jesus wasn't even gone an hour and he came back and they were sleeping. Get up, get up. I don't know if he kicked him, but <laughs> wake up. He goes away for a little while again. He comes back and they're sleeping. Get up. Pray, pray, keep watch. He goes away, comes back. They're sleeping again. So they wake up to see him taken away. Same three disciples. Peter, James, and John. They may have been leaders, but man, they needed their sleep. And Jesus made that classic statement when he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, I think all of us have determined that we're going to read our Bible. We're going to pray. We're going to do these certain spiritual acts. Maybe we're going to get up early in the morning and we're going to go for it. And we start going through our prayer journal, and it's like somebody sprinkled some sort of narcotic in there. And you could just barely stay awake. It's like listening to a four-year-old learn how to read. Oh, man. Will that ever put you asleep? And Peter is missing the greatest experience of his life. Because he was asleep. Now you think, well, Jack, how do you know this is the greatest experience? Well, because he says so. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then he goes on and he mentions the knowledge of God four times in the near following context. And then he says, you need to get this knowledge. You need to live by this knowledge. We have this knowledge. You need to make sure that you're abstaining from sin. And then he wants them to know this, that the word of God, this treasure we have from God is the most sure and important thing that we have. And so in order to emphasize that God's word is to be relied upon more than anything else, what he does is, is he goes back into his mind and he says, okay, where's that file cabinet called experiences? Let me look for that file that says the greatest experience I ever had. And he pulls out this. Second Peter 1, 16 through 19. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When we received honor and glory from the God, the father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he goes on to say, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. Sure, experiences are incredible. And I'm telling you, we had the granddaddy of them all. But you pay attention to the word. So here is the greatest experience Peter ever had. Jesus, Moses, Elijah and kingdom glory. And Peter slept through part of it. Mm. Don't you hate that? It's like when somebody says, oh, a shooting star. And you look up and it's gone. Where? Oh, you missed it. The lesson to learn here is don't be sleeping when you should be awake. Don't be sleeping when you should be awake. Have you ever woke up in the morning and you know you need to have your quiet time? And so you get up, but you're tired and you're kind of complaining about it. But you do it anyways. And truth be told, you are doing it more out of duty than out of love for the Lord and out of love for his word. And because you think you'll get a blessing, you're just going through the motions. So you do it. You get some coffee. You're sitting in a little spot. Get your little blankie or whatever. 
You confess your sins, you're praying, make some requests of God, thank him for some things. You start reading through some texts. Maybe you're reading through the Bible of the year and you're in the minor prophets. And the minor prophets have been pretty killer. Judgment. Whoa. Destruction. You sinners, I'm judging you. And and you've got this kind of sour attitude because you know, I don't know what's in the minor prophets, but everything I've read so far has just been nothing but destruction. And you can't wait to get to the New Testament. And all of a sudden you're reading along, plodding along, trying to get your two chapters in or whatever. And all of a sudden you come across a verse. Whoa, I know this verse. I like this verse. I've heard this verse quoted a lot of times. This verse has given me comfort. I didn't know this is where it came from. And you go, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the context a little bit more. Now you have kind of heightened interest. And so you read up to it. And when you see the verse in its context, it's more wonderful than it ever was before. And you thank God for it. And you ponder the truth and you meditate on it. And maybe all day long, maybe all week, maybe for the rest of your life, that verse encourages you and blesses you. And you're glad you didn't sleep in that day. In 1986, I was a third year student at Boise State University. I decided to take bonehead astronomy. You got to take something, you know, some sort of science. I thought, well, I'll take astronomy. I didn't know it, but that year was a special year because that was the year that Halley's Comet was coming by. It only comes by once every 76 years and just happened to be coming in the middle of that semester. And it was an exciting time because scientists had launched a spacecraft to intercept and take pictures of the comet as it passed by the Earth. It was, it was fascinating. This, this comet, we got pictures of it. It looked like this big giant glowing potato about 50 feet long and 30 feet wide and had all these violent gas eruptions, um, spewing out from it. But there was this catch. If you wanted to see Halley's Comet, you had to get up at 3.30 in the morning. Drive outside of town and set up with the hardcore astronomers. Now, the astronomy class was big. It was probably had 150, 200 people as one of those huge lecture halls. And so I got up in the morning, drove outside of town, got there. And there was about 10 people who showed up. You know, many Christians are like those astronomy students. They're unwilling to stay awake, get up early, be disciplined in Bible study, church attendance, prayer, service. And you know what? They rob themselves of their own blessing. They cheat themselves. Sure, God has made us to need sleep. But he's also given us a brain so we can know when to be awake. You know, we were awake for TV or awake for dinner or wait for sports awake for entertainment or awake for work. But when it comes time to receive eternal blessings, maybe we should sleep in. That is wrong. Now you may be sitting out there going, okay, Jack, now come on, you're meddling now. Um, okay. I've been robbing myself of the blessing. I haven't. Always been where I should be at the right times, awake, paying attention to receive the blessing. Well, what do I do about it? You know, I mean, what's, what's the cure? Here it is. Now I could go into, I think, a whole series of sermons on this, but here is the short and sweet of it. First Timothy chapter four, verse seven. This may seem trite, but it is the answer. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Listen, you want to play golf well? You get out there and hit balls. Take lessons. You want to be a great artist? You paint, you draw, you do whatever. You want to be a good runner? You run a lot. 
You want to be godly? You discipline yourself to practice the godly disciplines. You resolve to get up and read your Bible and pray. You resolve to come to church when things are happening. You resolve to serve. You resolve to share the gospel. If you stay up too late and you're really tired and you don't want to get up to read your Bible, you get up anyways. You read your Bible anyways. And all day long, you suffer for it. And you don't blame it on your quiet time. That wasn't the problem. Your quiet time didn't make you uh, tired. You made you tired. You just give yourself a, a thorough verbal lashing in your mind. Fool! What were you doing staying up so late watching that idiotic TV show? Now look how tired you are. You feel good? Don't ever do that again. Stop it. And you let your tiredness, you let your misery be dumped on the thing that did make you tired, but not on the blessing you received from spending time with the Lord. Don't ever make that the fault of your lack of discipline. That is the one thing you need more than anything else. It was Mark Twain who said, do something every day that you don't want to do. This is the golden rule for acquiring the habit of doing your duty without pain. That's it. I get up and spend time with the Lord every day at this time. Discipline produces habits. Habits produce progress. You know, even if you only read one chapter of the Bible a day, you know, that's not all that huge. (laughs) You know, minute, two minutes, let's just say it took you 10 minutes to read a chapter. You're a real slow reader. Chapter's big. In one year, you would have read 360 chapters. Now, there's only 260 chapters in the New Testament. Now, that means you'd read through the whole New Testament and Genesis and Jeremiah, which are some pretty large books. And that's more than most people ever read in a year. That's just from a little tiny bit of consistent effort. Think about what you could do if you put more effort in than that. Often we put ourselves through more pain and grief thinking about getting up and spending time with the Lord than just getting up and spending time with the Lord. You're laying in your bed. I don't want to get up. And oh, this is going to be hard. And you're not sleeping. You're complaining to yourself about the sleep you're not getting by complaining to yourself. It's not your quiet time that's depriving you. It's your own grumbly heart. Pious souls, you need to ask yourself this question. Are you more apt to get an eternal blessing by spending time with the Lord, serving, sharing your faith, being involved in church, or going through the mundane tasks of life? You know the answer. So make sure you aren't sleeping through the blessing. Don't be like Peter and James and John who slept through prayer times and almost missed the greatest experience of their life. Secondly, run in the right direction. Run in the right direction. Look at verse 33. Peter awakes from his nap, prayer nap. He's disoriented, doesn't really know what's going on. There's Jesus, Moses, Elijah, glowing like the sun, radiant in kingdom splendor. And they're earnestly talking about Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection and ascension. And verse 33 says, And as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Mark says in Mark 9, 6, Peter did not know what to answer and he was terrified. Peter fell asleep in prayer, woke up to see Jesus in kingdom glory. He was probably thinking to himself, did I miss the overthrow of Rome? What happened? Am I in heaven? 
I mean, you know, what would you think if you woke up and saw that? He sees Elijah, he sees Moses talking with Jesus, glowing like the sun, and then he makes this statement, Master, it's good for us to be here. I mean, how do you even respond to a statement like that? (laughs) Of course it's good to be here. I mean, a good grasp of the obvious. That is a Herculean, grotesque understatement. Of course. It was good for Peter to be there. You look, see Jesus looking over at Peter as he's talking to Moses and Elijah. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> Have you ever been asleep and received a phone call in the middle of the night? You know, you're dreaming and all of a sudden you dream that the phone's ringing. And all of a sudden you wake up and the phone is ringing. You look at your clock and you realize, man, it's 2.30 in the morning. And all of a sudden you think, something must be wrong. Somebody's calling from church. Somebody died. Somebody's in the hospital. She groped for the receiver. (laughs) Hello? (laughs) Try to deceive them that, oh, I'm always awake at 3.30 or 2.30 (laughs) a.m. Then you hear this strange voice at the other end speaking in some language you don't even understand. (laughs) And you know that you don't have the gift of the interpretation of tongues. So you say, wrong number. And you hang up. Listen, we need to cut Peter some slack. He just woke up. He just woke up from a sound sleep. And there was blinding light. And the first thing out of his mouth mouth was the great understatement, Master, it is good for us to be here. Mm. But what about his next statement? This is an interesting one. Let us make three tabernacles. You know, let's do some makeshift lean-tos. I mean, doesn't that just, when you read that, doesn't that just make you wonder, well, what, what is that? You know, I mean, it's like, let's build forts. Well, when you think about that, what is a tabernacle? What is a tabernacle? A tabernacle is really a sacred shelter, a sacred fort. When God instituted the Feast of Booths, it was also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was instituted in Leviticus 23, verses 34 and following, Deuteronomy 16, verse 13 and following, the Israelites were instructed to celebrate this feast in concert with the feast of ingathering or the feast of the harvest. And they were told, yes, what you need to do is, is all your males need to go to Jerusalem, get branches and palm bow and make a little fort, a little lean to a little tabernacle. And then kind of sleep there, do a little camping, get some male bonding in. And then at the end, have a big feast. And so that's what they did. That was the Feast of Tabernacles. The question is, what, what, what was Peter doing? We'll turn to Zechariah chapter 14. If you don't know where Zechariah is, if you go to the beginning of the New Testament and go back just a little bit. Zechariah and then Malachi or Malachi if you're Italian. <laughs> Two books into the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah was sent by God to the people who came back from Babylon after the Babylonian captivity to encourage them that the Messiah was coming, that he was going to send up his kingdom, set up his kingdom on earth, and that he was going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Chapter 14 is the climactic chapter which talks about the return of the Lord to earth, to the Mount of Olives, to set up his kingdom which will endure forever. So it's a great passage, and every Jew knew about this passage because every Jew was waiting for it to come to pass. Now, remember previously, Jesus said, some of you will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So most likely, Peter's thinking to himself, hey, the kingdom of God's coming, and maybe 
he and the other disciples, or maybe just himself, is thinking about these messianic texts, about the kingdom or whatever. So in, in Zechariah, it talks about at the beginning of the chapter, God coming forth to fight is when he fights on the day of battle. He beats up Israel's enemies. He rescues the righteous. Then it talks about him making geographical changes in the land. And then when we get to verse 16 of Zechariah 14, we read this. Then we'll come about... That any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If... The family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feasts of booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booths. Now get that. Peter knows about this text. All Jews know about all the key messianic texts. A week earlier, Jesus says, some of you are not going to test death until you see the kingdom of God. Peter's thinking about this. He wakes up. It's good for us to be here. This is the kingdom. We need to celebrate the feast of, because that's exactly what God said they would do as soon as the kingdom was set up. Celebrate the feast of booths. So he says, hey, hey, Moses, Elijah, don't run off. I'll get your building materials. Talk with Jesus. Now there's a lesson here. The lesson is this. Was Peter zealous to serve and obey God? Yes. Did Peter have good intentions? Yes. Were Peter's actions based on the scriptures? Yes. Was Peter right? No. No. Maybe if he was a bit more awake, if he had asked a few more questions, gathered a bit more information, just was patient for a minute, he wouldn't have acted the way he did, but he did act that way. But one thing is certain, Peter was very zealous to do the right thing, but did the wrong thing. Every Christian experiences times like this. You know, you decide you're going to do a ministry. You're so excited. I've got this idea. I've got a ministry idea. So you start thinking about it. You start planning it. You talk to people and, and, and you start spending time and energy and resources to get this ministry going. You mentioned it to one person and they say, well, have you talked to the elders about this? Well, no. Should I? Yeah, they've been talking about this for a long time. I think they have something different planned. Oh, And you realize you have just ran ahead with great zeal, with good intentions, with scriptural intent, and done the wrong thing. You're reading a book because you want to grow in the Lord. You're a baby believer. You're you're trying to figure out Christianity. You want to know about doctrine. You want to know about the Christian life. You want to know about the Bible. So you go down to the Christian bookstore, you buy some books, and you start reading them. You're standing out here in the foyer and you're saying, yeah, man, I'm reading so-and-so's book. And the person says, you're what? That, man, that, that guy is off, man. His books are full of false doctrine. And you were like, really? Yeah, well, I bought these other three too. Get rid of them. Man, those things are like poison. And you realize, well, I wonder if they can take them back and... You're kind of bummed out because, you know, I tried to do the right thing. I mean, I didn't know they were bad books. I mean, they're Christian books. They're at the Christian bookstore. They should be good. <laughs> Zealous, yes, but running in the wrong direction. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, they had some good intentions. They were going to give this huge gift to the church and just lie a little bit about giving the whole amount. And God just killed them. Simon Magus he wanted the gift of the Holy Spirit so he could go around and heal people, do some good, like the apostles. They just wanted to pay for it. Peter pronounced a curse upon him. The seven sons of Siva in Acts 19 thought, hey, the apostles are casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Let's do it too. I mean, we don't know Jesus, but let's use the name. 
And so the demon beat them up, tore off their clothes, and they ran away naked. Zealous? Yes. Good intentions? It seems. Wrong? Most definitely. Presumption, assumptions can cause great harm to yourself and to other people. Paul speaks of one very dangerous kind of presumption in 1 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7, when he says, For some men, straying from these things, speaking of sound doctrine, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they did not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Discussion's good, but not fruitless discussion. Teaching is good, but not false teaching. Being confident in teaching is good, but not being confident in false doctrine. Being zealous doesn't make you a sound teacher. But the most dangerous form of presumption and assumption is to assume that you're actually a true believer when you're not. This is a damning presumption. You say... I'm a Christian. How do you know? Well, I am. I go to church, don't I? I I've got a little fish on the back of my car. My mom said I was. And we have looked at that sobering text in Matthew 7, verses 21 and following, where all those people who know Jesus, know he is Lord, are involved in church, who are doing good works, come to Jesus in the last day. Jesus describes them as the many... And he says to them, Lord, they say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And he says to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And into hell they go. Oh, that would be terrible. To think you're going to heaven, to be zealously doing, quote, the Lord's work, and then to get to heaven only discover you've been doing Satan's work from church, at least the church building. Listen, Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood and rose from the dead to save sinners and sinners only. If you think you're pretty good, he didn't die for you. He only died for sinners, wretched sinners who know in their heart and feel in their heart that they are corrupt, that they are wicked, that they cannot save themselves. There's nothing they can do. They're like Martin Luther tormented from within and then they realize that god paved the way through the death burial and resurrection of christ and they see that the only way they could ever have access into heaven the only way they could be justified before god is to receive the free gift of eternal life have you done that if you have it changes your life not do you know the facts but have you been born again have you been Regenerated, have you been transformed into a new creature to use some of the scriptural terms? I cringe to think of how many zealous, religious, Christ professing people will end up in hell thinking they're on the way to heaven. Jesus says it's the few that get there and the many who perish from the church building. This brings us to our third point receive rebuke. Peter's excited. He's fearful. He's half dazed from sleep. He's wanting desperately to do what is right. He's making stupid comments. And he even wants to build some shelters. Holy shelters. Sacred tabernacles. Let's celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now look at verse 35. Then a voice came out of the cloud. This Is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter was frantic trying to do all these things. God the Father wanted Peter to look at the kingdom of God and to listen to Jesus talk with Moses and Elijah about his impending death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And yet Peter was running around like a chicken with his head caught off. Let me, let me get you some branches. Peter was impulsive. He often acted before he thought. And I'm telling you, in his life, he received some whopper rebukes. Mm. You remember this one? Get behind me, Satan. Ow. 
And he was just being concerned. You Lord, you aren't going to go, you aren't going to die. Get behind me, Satan. You you aren't setting your mind on the things of God. Oh, could you imagine how that would have just run him through? Or how about this one? Lord, I will never deny you. I will lay down my life. I will die before denying you. Denies him three times with cursing and swearing. Jesus raises from the dead, catches up with Peter later and says, Peter, Simon, this is the old name. So, do you love me unconditionally? Well, Lord, you know I like you. Peter, do you love me unconditionally? I mean, what could he say? Well, I did deny you. I like you a lot. Peter, do you even like me a lot? (laughs) Would that have been a wound? Oh. And as painful as those rebukes were in Peter's life, this is the granddaddy. When God has to rebuke you from heaven, that puts you into a category of one. And look at verse 36. After he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Verse 36 says, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Lesson over, prophecy fulfilled. Peter saw the kingdom, chattered and was busy through most of the important part. He didn't stop. He didn't listen. He didn't learn. He missed it. Look at the end of verse 36. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days of any of the things which they had seen. Wonder why. And what would Peter say? Yep, we went up the mountain to pray and I fell asleep. I did wake up though, halfway through the vision. And then I said, why did I say this? It's good for us to be here. I did get to see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, but I was collecting branches to build tabernacles so we could celebrate the Feast of Booths. And then God the Father rebuked me from heaven and told me to listen to Jesus. And then it went away. That is... That is going to be interesting to talk to Peter about that one. (laughs) And rebuke is painful, but we need it. We need it. You know somebody loves you if they come to you and confront you about some sin or some behavior or something you're doing that's not right. You know they love you more than anyone else. Proverbs 27 verse 5 and 6 say, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Do you know what that means? That means this, that to not rebuke somebody is to conceal love. When they need rebuke and you don't do it, you are concealing love for them. You're holding back love from them. Verse 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Oh, the enemy doesn't want to be uncomfortable. The enemy doesn't want to rebuke you. The enemy doesn't want to lose your friendship. The enemy wants to feel comfortable. So instead of doing what is best for you and saying, pal, man, you got an area here in your life you're blind to. This is wrong. They just say, you're a good guy. I love you, brother. They are your enemy. But the friend wounds you. He wounds you. Friends faithfully wound each other out of love. Enemies tell you what you want to hear and flatter you. So as a group, Calvary Bible Church, we need to learn to give rebuke with grace and learn to receive it with grace. So when somebody comes up to you and says, you know, Jack, I've been seeing something in your life and I'm concerned about it. My response shouldn't be, hey, who are you to talk to me? I'm sinless. 
You need to say, let me drop my guard. Hit me there hard. Wound me. Wound me. You need to receive it. You need to receive the blows. And yes, it it hurts, but you know what? These rebukes that Peter received changed his life for the better. And don't think you're being a friend when you see somebody going off in a bad direction and you're just watching from a distance and you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's okay. You need to leave here this morning committed to remain awake to receive the blessing. You need to leave here committed to zealously run in the right direction. Pray, ask questions, get counsel, exercise self-control until you know what the right direction is. And third and finally, be willing both to give and receive rebuke. Don't be defensive about it. Just say, hit me. And take it and learn the lesson. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we're able to learn from this passage. Father, there is so much more here. But Father, I just pray that we would learn from Peter's mistakes. Father, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for including bits of his life in the pages of your word so that we could relate and learn the same lessons he needed to learn. Father, if our lives were scrutinized and if our lives were written down in your book, oh, how many things others could learn not to do from us. So, Father, may we learn these lessons. May we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness to be where eternal blessings are being handed out. May we run in the right direction with zeal. And Father, may we receive rebuke. If there's somebody here who doesn't know you, who has never repented of their sins, has never cried out in their heart, I pray that they would do so right now, that they would just cry out and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I am a sinner. I am lost. I am in need of your grace. Save me and wash me clean. I trust you and only you. And what you accomplish on the cross and your resurrection to save me, make me a new creature, clean me white as snow by your blood. And Father, make that happen by your grace so that we can rejoice and the angels can sing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.